and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Tom Mars. Tom is a highly experienced and successful trial lawyer based on his previous career as a Virginia police officer. And after more than 10 years as a trial lawyer, Tom served as director of the Arkansas State Police from 1998 to 2001. Shortly thereafter, Tom was recruited by Walmart to manage its vast litigation portfolio and was promoted to general counsel four months later. In his role as Walmart's general counsel, Tom was responsible for all of the company's legal matters, both in the U.S. and internationally. After serving as general counsel for seven years, Tom served for four years as chief administrative officer of Walmart U.S. In his role as CAO, he was responsible for a number of Walmart's U.S. business units, including real estate, financial services, HR, labor, external relations, and U.S. compliance. In recent years, Tom has represented a number of high-profile student-athletes in matters involving NCAA eligibility issues. In describing Tom's ability to win difficult cases in high-stakes litigation, members of the media and former clients have described Tom as fearless, relentless, and committed to winning. Commenting on Tom's track record as a trial lawyer, one journalist recently said that Mars is to lawyering what Tom Brady is to quarterbacking. Tom, welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks, Fred. Uh, what a nice introduction. Sort of hard to believe that guy you were just describing is the same guy that worked at your dad's Chevron station about uh, almost 50 years ago. But uh, <laughs> thanks for that introduction. It's uh, always nice to visit with you, and I'm glad to be here. My pleasure, Tom. Uh, you and I have known each other for quite some time, and uh, I must say this, you have uh, a much more distinguished career than I do. Well, I wouldn't agree with that, but as you and I have said, it's, uh, it depends on your perspective. You know, your career is not nearly as interesting to you as it is to a lot of other people, and I see it differently, Fred. I haven't written uh, four or five or six books, and uh, I think our teachers at Leland Junior High School would be proud of us. I have no doubt, and uh, I also want to say that uh, we're very pleased to announce here at OnTech that Tom is one of our newest advisory board mem- members. Thanks, Fred. I, I should just say for your audience that, as you know, I I don't just jump on advisory boards uh, at, at the first invitation. In fact, I've turned down almost all the invitations to serve on advisory boards, but the work you and your colleagues are doing there on it just it, it fits so tightly into the work that I do and the work that I do with various legal colleagues around the country that I was really excited to have the opportunity to join the company as an advisor and really looking forward to working with you and Luke and the rest of the team. Well, we're glad you're here. Let's jump right in. Tom, how do you see the intersection of corporate security and legal? Well, I'm not sure that my view is much different than the view of other professionals who've worked in this space. My firsthand experience in this space, as you know, Fred, was twofold. Both situations at Walmart, 
the first serving as general counsel with worldwide responsibilities for the company's legal affairs, which I did for about seven years. And secondly, serving in a business leadership capacity as chief administrative officer. And so I had the opportunity to look at these issues both through the lens of a, a lawyer, the most senior lawyer responsible for the company's legal affairs as general counsel, and as a as a business leader who was responsible for seven or eight different support functions of Walmart US, including human resources, financial services, and a number of other labor relations and a number of other areas. And I was with the company during a time frame when the company went through a lot of transformation on several different levels. First, I think a lot of people might remember that 20 years ago, 25 years ago, Walmart was really suffering from some reputational hits, especially on the, on the workforce front, and was aggressively pushing back at pretty much any criticism that was lobbed at the company. And I, I was there when the company changed course and became much more receptive and responsive to criticism. And as that was unfolding, I had some firsthand experience dealing with a number of crises at Walmart. That, you know, a crisis a day was sort of par for the course. But some of these crises were enormous. And I'd say at least half of them had a security feature, a legal feature, and a public relations feature. And when I first joined the company, we really didn't have much of a foothold in the security area. But we were fortunate enough to uh, be able to attract Ken Sensor to head up global security for Walmart. Ken, as you know, served as deputy director. Of, I think he's the only person on the planet, I'm sure he is, who served as deputy director of the FBI and the CIA for security. And he brought with him so much knowledge that it almost immediately transformed the way the company looked at security. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work closely with Ken. And as, as we all know, at least all of us who've worked in either these legal areas or security areas in large corporations or even small corporations, there has been a tendency over the years to silo those functions. And we were pretty siloed at first. But over time, not so much by changing the org chart, but by creating a lot of dotted line relationships, we sort of flattened the org chart. And I could see very easily the difference in effectiveness of the company's response to a whole host of situations. It's hard to describe them in one word, but these these are all situations that I'm thinking of that involve uh, a legal function, a security function, and a public relations function. So uh, Leslie Dock was the head of corporate affairs at the time. And off the top of my head, I could think of a half a dozen to a dozen serious situations where Ken, myself, and Leslie were coordinating closely and working together. And my advice to anybody who's uh, wrestling with how to deal with organizing those functions inside a company in this day and age would be to uh, combine those functions as, as much as you can. I know a lot of companies have had the security function report up through legal to the general counsel. I think that's a good idea. I don't know that it's necessary because we never did that at Walmart. There's two ways to skin this cat. You can change the org chart or you can change the working relationships. And we chose to take the latter path. Interesting. Tom, from, from your seat, do you think a good corporate security program helps to reduce liability to a company? Well, I don't think so, Fred. I know so. I just was doing some research on this very topic in the last week because the law practice I have now is, is pretty unique and some of it involves consulting with large corporations. And I was doing some of that work in the last week and, and took a look at some recent, very recent workplace violence statistics, financial data, actually. And uh, here's some interesting stats. Uh, 
this is just workplace violence, and this is a sliver of the overall security function. But according to this recent research, uh, $3 or more is saved for every dollar invested in workplace safety. $121 billion in annual losses are attributed to workplace assaults. Workplace catastrophes, such as violent incidents, have caused publicly traded companies to lose close to 8% shareholder value. Wow. And lawsuits associated with workplace violence cost companies an average of $500,000 for out-of-court settlements. What's that tell you? That's just a sliver of, of what can be avoided through an effective security program. And I'd have to say, although you didn't ask me for it, I'd have to say that in this year, a year that will be remembered by all of us for the rest of our lives, it's even more important this year. That's one of the reasons I was so eager to um, accept your invitation to join Ontex Advisory Board. If you do any casual research, you'll find that there's a tsunami of new employment litigation spurred primarily by the pandemic. Interesting fun fact, the EEOC for about 60 days basically stopped sending right to sue letters. And I think it was just about three to four weeks ago they opened up the pipeline again. And so now they're going to be spitting out six months worth of right to sue letters in a two month period, which is likely, likely certainly going to add another layer of employment litigation on top of the massive increase that's occurred in the last year. And some of that increase is not just because of the pandemic. Some of it is because we all know we're living in a different world this year with racial injustice being on the front page of you know, of every newspaper every day. Sure. Uh, front and center in the presidential debate. That's created more litigation in part because people are more aware of their rights and they're more willing to pursue them. And so really what we have here is we're on the verge of a massive increase in employment litigation, workplace litigation, laws uh, of pandemic and other issues. And at least from my perspective, as I made clear, having an effective security program is critical not just helpful, it's critical, especially the health of a public company and shareholders and Wall Street are watching everything so closely. But uh, yeah, that's why, as you know, I have a real keen interest in the work that you're doing there because so much of it relates directly to what I do for clients. And I'll say this, and I'm saying it because I believe it, not because it sounds good, but Ontic's shown me that it has the speed and agility to deliver really accurate results in, in a time frame that I've never experienced with any other companies in this space. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Tom. That's uh, the reason I'm here. Uh, when I first looked at uh, what our platform can do, I, quite frankly, uh, had never seen anything like it. Uh, Tom, from your eyes and from a 30,000-foot perspective, what keeps a chief legal counsel up at night? Fred, I used to get asked that question all the time when I was general counsel at Walmart because whoever is holding that position is, uh, you know, it's the Fortune 1 company and, and speaking invitations in front of large general counsel groups are plentiful, to say the least. And I took as many of those invitations as, as I could afford to. But uh, I was asked that question all the time. And the answer that I gave was nothing. Nothing keeps me up at night because that was uh, not necessarily the honest answer, but the only answer that I could give without spewing out a litany of things that kept me up at night. <laughs> uh, being the general counsel, I was, uh, was talking to the general counsel of a big fortune company just Monday, and some things about being a general counsel never change. Not sure this is necessarily true. General counsel sitting in the Fortune 400, 
But in the Fortune 100, it's like playing a really fast video game. I'm not up to speed on all the latest, but uh, you remember back when we were teenagers, Fred, I think, where all those little missiles are shooting at you, and the goal was to, to get every one of them before they got you. And that's a good description of the life of a general counsel. But it is an incredibly difficult job that is, I mean, it just requires you to have a lot of situational awareness and to be very focused all the time. Because if one of those missiles gets past you, there are going to be consequences. You might not know it for six months or a year, but there will be. So the more honest answer would have been, everything keeps me up at night. (laughs) There are a lot of things I miss about Walmart, primarily the culture. And I miss my former colleagues. I'll probably stay in touch with most of them. But one thing I don't miss is uh, being in a role that takes about two years off your life every year. It's really demanding. And it's not just a general counsel. (laughs) I remember Lee Scott, the CEO of Walmart, mentored me and took me under his wing. One uh, Friday meeting, I guess it was, he was up there in front of maybe 375 Walmart officers. We would meet every Friday morning, early, 7 o'clock. And Lee, one morning, remarked that people in the audience probably think the people sitting at the front table, him particularly, have everything nailed down and come to work every day, knowing exactly what they're going to do and feeling like they have everything nailed down. But he said to the whole audience of officers, you know what? Nothing could be further from the truth. I come to work every day feeling exactly the way you do. And uh, I mean, it was such an enlightening moment for me. It made me feel a little better about myself, too. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTix Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTix Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.ai slash center. That's ontic.ai slash center. Tom, you you are uh, a very unique person, meaning I know the the humble beginnings that uh, we came from, and I look back and you've worked for uh, Hillary Clinton, Mike Huckabee, you've directed the Arkansas State Police, you've got a lifetime of leadership lessons that we all can learn from. If I had to ask you, what's the the top thing you've learned over time, looking back over your career, that you would like to pass on to those who are listening to us? Well, from a leadership perspective, there are several, but there's one that's always stood out as being the one I'm, I'm, I'm always wanted to pass on to other people. And it's also the one that I see most often in, re- most often in real time being violated by people in leadership positions. And I attribute this word for word to Lee Scott when he said, ego is the greatest enemy of leadership. And I don't think anybody who's been in a leadership position who thinks about that for more than 10 seconds would disagree. We all have egos. There's nothing wrong with having an ego. But the other two things that I, even though you didn't ask for it, I really want to pass on. Please. And these, these came from Mike Duke, who was the CEO of Walmart who succeeded Lee Scott. And he told me this in private one day because one of the great things about working for that company, Fred, was the company teaches by 
telling stories. They speak in parables and and it's a nonstop learning experience. You can never stop learning about leadership at Walmart. And one day Mike said to me in his office, you know, four of the most powerful words of leadership are, Tom? I said, no, Mike, what's that? He said, I could be wrong. Hmm. He said, let me give you four more. What do you think? Now, if you think about that, applying that kind of thinking to your leadership can be game-changing for everybody. It was for me. And not only that, I could tell you, I could bring forth witnesses from my personal life who would tell you that kind of thinking also can be game-changing in your personal life. There's a perfect example of that that's it's more down into the weeds, more granular that I'll share. Lee took me uh, into his office after a very important meeting one day that involved the, the question of whether we were going to pay $3.5 billion to settle the largest class action that had ever been filed in the United States. As a general counsel, I was responsible for making a recommendation. My recommendation was not to settle it, which could have been career-limiting if I was wrong. And it took 10 years to get to the Supreme Court of the United States, but eventually we did, and the case was dismissed. Lucky me. But we had a pretty lively conversation with the chairman and other people in a conference room, and Lee took me into his office, and he said, uh, Mars, you did a good job in there. I'm not being critical, but you're at that point where I can teach you some things that will really take you to the next level. And there's just one suggestion I wanted to make. He said, when you were talking to, uh, I can't remember her, her name, I'll just say Carolyn, and expressing your disagreement because she wanted to settle the case and you didn't, just think how different it would have sounded to Carolyn and everybody else in the room if instead of saying, I disagree with you, if you'd said, Carolyn, it's not clear to me why you think we should settle the case. He said, Mars, everybody in the room would know, and she would know that you disagree with her, but she wouldn't feel like you're putting her down. She wouldn't feel like she was attacked. Not that you made it sound that way. He said, this is just, piece of advice is generally applicable in life. And I was just wanting to share that with you. And Fred, I, since that day, I have never handled a conversation that involved disagreement the way I did before that advice from Lee. And if anybody listening to this wants to give it a try, I'm telling you, it can change your life. And all you got to do is remember, it's real simple. It's not clear to me why you feel that way. So you can say that to your spouse. It's not clear to me why you feel that way. That's an invitation to the person you disagree with to explain why they feel the way they do. And everybody in a disagreement wants to have that opportunity and they appreciate the fact that you're asking. And it's just another example of why the opportunity to work at Walmart at the level I did was such a blessing. It was really, you know, it really changed my life in a lot of ways. Tom, when you and I were chatting yesterday and talking about a whole range of topics, and one of the things that you brought up to me that I thought was very powerful, that although I've known you since kindergarten, you've you've never shared with me, was the uh, aspect of your theory on resumes and failures. Uh, Could you touch on that a bit? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be glad to. I'm glad you asked me, Fred. As everybody knows, a resume is a unique tool because it's inherently dishonest. A resume is designed to let you show the world how great you are, how experienced you are, and how talented you are. It's been my experience, not just personally, but definitely personally, and my experience just watching colleagues who've been extraordinarily successful, both lawyers, business executives, and others, that there may not be any person who really can claim to be very successful who hasn't had some significant failures and setbacks. And what I was sharing with you, Fred, is that I speak sometimes at business schools and law schools. And one of the things I like to do when I'm speaking to 
MBA students or law students or young lawyers is to have the person who invited me to speak, it's usually the dean of the business school or the law school, to use my resume to introduce me. And I usually tell them, really pour it on thick. I mean, make me look like Superman. <laughs> and because resumes are inherently dishonest, I do sort of look like Superman, you know, and sort of start by saying, that sounded pretty impressive, didn't it? And then I tell them what I just said. You know, nobody that I know or know of, for that matter. I mean, even Tom Brady had to deflate gate. But none of us you know, are uh, people who've climbed a mountain and then, and then leaped to the next tall peak. And the next tall peak, uh, yeah, I mean, might have been some climbs, and, but there were some serious falls along the way. And I just start giving them examples of failures and show them how if I had put those failures on my resume, well, I not so good. Hmm. And my favorite example is, uh, I think somewhere on my website or my bio, there's some reference to the number of millions of dollars of uh, verdicts, jury verdicts and litigation settlements I've achieved for clients. And it's some, I think somewhere in the range of 50 million something. And so I use this example. I uh, Last time I vividly remember giving this talk, I had just finished the Houston Nut case against Old Miss and everybody was familiar with that. And so I said, I remember saying my bio to Houston because he deserved to see it before he made a decision to hire me. And I wonder how differently I would have looked at Houston if I had put a footnote on that part of my resume that says $50, $55 billion, a footnote that says, by the way, I also hold the record in Arkansas, I think, for losing the largest jury verdict. It was $65 million. Hmm. <laughs> and I remember saying, I don't know if Houston not as a mathematician, but He's a football coach, so I know he does numbers. And if you subtract 65 from 50, it would have looked like I was $15 million in the hole. It might not look so hot to Houston. And I talk about this, and I, I mentioned this on another sports-related podcast recently. I think it's an important thing to mention because most people won't admit it. And, and here, here it is. It's just my opinion. With rare exceptions, my favorite being Colin Powell, the rare exceptions People typically do not get leadership positions in government because they have a track record of great leadership. That's not how it works in government. Now, I'm not saying it works that way in corporate America and every company either. In my experience, it works that way a lot more in corporate America. But people don't generally get appointed to leadership positions in government because they, they're bringing to the table a great track record of leadership. So let me tell you from personal experience what happens when you get appointed to a government position of leadership. When I was appointed to be the director of the Arkansas State Police by Mike Huckabee in 1998, I didn't know this at the time, but I thought I knew something about leadership. Because why? Because I'd read leadership books, you know, John Maxwell, those kinds of books. What happens when you get appointed to a position in government, you automatically think that you're a good leader, maybe a great leader. Why? Because you're the leader now. And people look at you like you're the leader. They treat you like a leader. And, and it's a it's a brainwashing experience like you just wouldn't believe. And I didn't even realize I was brainwashing myself at the time. Looking back, I think I did a pretty good job of leading the Arkansas State Police or managing the Arkansas State Police. Decent. Probably some troopers who might listen to this and say, I don't think so, Bars. But, you know, I, I still stay in touch with a lot of troopers, and I'm proud of the work that I did for those three years. But when I got to Walmart, I thought I... I thought I knew something about leadership for two reasons. 
One, because I'd just been appointed to a leadership position, same reason as before. And secondly, I now had the experience of being a leader at the Arkansas State Police. And Fred, I could not have been more wrong. It was a, it was a great experience, but through Lee Scott mainly and also Mike Duke, who was then the chief administrative officer, a position that ironically I would assume seven years later, uh, they both sat me down about six months after I was appointed as a general counsel and in their own way explained to me that I had a lot to learn about leadership. And the, uh, I won't tell the whole story unless you want me to, Fred, but the uh, most memorable and terrifying moment of my Walmart career was when I was in Mike Duke's office. He invited me there for lunch on a pretext so that he could hear my take on how things were going. And then when I was finished, he looked at the clock and said he had a meeting at one o'clock and needed to finish up. And almost like Columbo, if you remember that old TV show, oh yeah, he looks back at me and says, uh, no, he asked me, when, when are you going home? And I told him like seven o'clock or something. And he said, well, can I, can I make a suggestion? And of course, you know, he's a very senior guy in the company. What am I supposed to say? Of course, Mike, what's that? Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I think the first thing you should do when you get home is look in the mirror because you're the problem. Wow. That's what he said. And there was a long silence, a painful silence. It was probably two seconds. It felt like an hour to me. And Mike would later say, I made the best decision of my career in the next five seconds when I said, will you help me? And that really changed the, the arc of my career. Lee tells the same story sometimes in public, and I don't know if he's embellishing or not when he says that they'd already had human resources right up by the uh, separation agreement. But uh, he's never told me whether he's embellishing or not. And <laughs> afraid he might, afraid he might not be. But at any rate, uh, Lee met with me the next day. He said he would take me under his wing and teach me about Walmart leadership, but only if I was willing to change. And I said I was. And uh, for the next 18 months, I flew with him every month outside the country, and I didn't add any value to those trips. But I had a lot of time with Lee, and he taught me a lot about leadership. And and uh, five years from the date that I was hired, I was appointed, promoted to executive vice president at a time when there were very few, I think maybe 30 in the entire company. And then Lee did that in an officer meeting and in front of those 375 officers, uh, told them what I just shared with you. And so I sort of became a, a poster boy at Walmart for that era for, you know, the ability to come in and not really know anything about leadership, but be willing to admit your shortcomings and change. And, and I, I did. And that's why, among other reasons, it was the most rewarding professional experience of my life. And it literally changed me as a person. It also made me a much more effective lawyer, in my opinion. Those are powerful lessons, uh, Tom. I appreciate you sharing that with uh, our audience. Tom, is there anything that you would like to say that I haven't asked you? Yeah, I'd like to shout out a, a word of appreciation to Willie Epps at Burton <laughs> Chevron. Um, uh, Fred, uh, you'll, you'll remember, he was a great mentor, the mechanic who, uh, when we were all the age of 12 or 13, uh, taught us important life lessons. I don't know if Willie's still alive or not, but uh, good shout out there for Willie Epps. Yeah, and uh, my father passed away a, a long time ago, Tom, but uh, I can say this, he would have been very proud of what you have done. Well, let me say this, Fred, before we close here. Your dad made a huge impact on dozens of young kids who are now, what are we, old men? Yeah. And uh, I, I 
really appreciate the opportunity to say publicly how much that means to me now, looking back on our childhood and the influence he had, and God bless him for all he did for us. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Can't wait to get back on the advisory board uh, work and and, uh, see what's going to happen with Ontic. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Rye and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.